What is this word preeminence that is of such importance in this passage? And the simple definition would be that preeminent means that you surpass all others. There is no one that is of equal value or of equal knowledge. You're very distinguished in some way. You're more important than all others. We would think of something like the world's most preeminent expert on biology or some other study or some other expertise. Well, Christ is preeminent. He has surpassed even the world's greatest experts. He is over all things. And we see, beginning in verse 15 through verse 17, that Christ is preeminent in his creation. And really, before we can even understand, and Paul, I think, does this well, before we can even understand the preeminence he has over creation, he gives us, in verse 15, a very clear picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is Christ and what is his significance? Now we see in verse 15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into a theological pitfall here when we understand, when we, when we tackle this word image. Because we have a, a very finite view of image. We take a snapshot, a photograph of an individual or a family member. Or we, we mold as an artist a model out of clay or cast it in bronze or some other substance. And, and we, we view that as a picture. We view that as a less equal image of, of, of reality. So we take this picture and we, we know that that's what they look like, but that we know that's not really what they look like. In, 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 in all of their completeness. Maybe the light's different. Have you ever taken a picture and you look at the picture on the back of the screen and you realize that your light meter was off and the person that you took a picture of, which had a nice bronze glow on them, was puke green. Because the, the cast of the light, well, that's not them. We know that. It's an image. It, it's to portray them. But it's less equal than really who they are. Well, we cannot approach this text this morning as seeing Christ as somehow less equal. Or he, we see him in, as an image of God, but he's, he's not all the way God. He's just sort of a close but an unper, imperfect picture, an imperfect character of the real thing. That's, that's not the truth. Christ is fully God and fully man. And this, this picture of, Christ, of God was all of God in Christ. Not just some of it. It was all there. He's fully divine. He was flesh and blood, but he was also fully God. He's not simply a portrayal of reality. It was reality. He was the God-man. And this understanding of Jesus Christ as being a full and complete Son of God, both perfectly God and perfect man, is not an image that is so often portrayed in the Christian home or in the churches today. Which is why that we have watered down the gospel. We have watered down the person and work of Christ. We have brought him to something less than he truly is. And if we do that, we will never fully understand or fully grasp the full significance of the gospel. The gospel that we know will be left lacking if Christ is not truly who he is. Which is why Paul approaches this 
preeminence over creation in verse 16 and 17, second half of 15, by giving us a clear picture of, listen carefully, who Christ is, he is divine. He is fully God. The Son of God had to come to earth to fulfill the redemptive plan of God, but he also had to come boldly in order to provide a picture, an image for us to be able to see. And that should be a a clarion call, a very direct and clear statement for us. That we worship the risen Christ, but all that we know from Scripture gives us direct access to relationship with God. All the world powers, all the false religions, they come, they go, and their mere existence on this earth, they will spend whatever time they have to try to get you to believe this one thought that Christ was not the Son of God. He might have been a prophet. He might have been a very good man. But he was not the Son of God. And that's the hinge for all false religions, isn't it? Who is Christ and what did he do? That's that's the core of all false religions. It's what makes apologetics so broad and yet so extremely simple. Because in a conversation, if you can simply get them, get yourself to understand what do they believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's the hinge for all things. John 1, verse 18, No man hath ever seen God. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, hath manifested himself to us. We see Christ, we can see the Father. Not physically, but we see Him as He is in the Son. Christ was not simply an afterthought in the grand plan of redemption. No, He was there from the beginning. And this gets us into the preeminence of Christ over creation. Christ was there in the beginning and in fact was of supreme importance over all creation. And all creation revolved around even from the very beginning of time, Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1, about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ was preeminent, is preeminent over all creation. Look at verse 16. For by him, this is speaking of Christ, all things were created. Or your translation might say, for in him all things were created. We and all creation are designed and created for him. And that is all things, whether whether they would be physical things, flesh and blood in creation, or spiritual things, were created with reference to the Son of God. William Hendrickson has a great commentary on the book of Colossians, and this is what he says about this point. A great, uh, a wonderful analogy for us to be able to see how, how Christ is the reference point to all creation. As two walls, this is William Hendrickson, and, and the bricks... In these walls are arranged in relation to the cornerstone. So you have a corner on a wall. And one wall goes one way and one wall goes the other. As these walls are arranged in relation to the cornerstone from which they derive their angle of direction. So it was in relation to Christ that all things were originally created. He is their point of reference. He is their point of reference. Now the question may arise in our minds. That it seems that scripture points very clearly to the fact that God, the Father, not Christ the Son, was the creator. 
and you, we would be correct in thinking of God, the Father, as the Creator. But in that thinking, we cannot miss the point that Paul is trying to proclaim very clearly here, which is that the Son of God, as well as the Father, is fully divine. If you flip over maybe one page in your Bible to Colossians 2, verse 9, you see this. For in Him, Christ, the whole, all, complete, every bit of it, fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is Paul's statement here. Not that Christ created them, but that He is fully divine. We're talking about the Godhead, the Trinity. Now we see in, in the remainder part of verse 16 and 17, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Christ is preeminent over all creation. And notice he's preeminent over all power. He's power over power. Dominions, rulers, authorities. And his, that power over power is for him, which should give us as believers encouragement in a, in a land and in a world that is opposed to Christ. The, the corrupt powers, the governments, the rulers, the presidents, the kings are, are for him. They do serve a purpose and it will be for his glory. He is preeminent over all things. He will use those things. And we can approach this, these terms, thrones, dominions, kings, authorities, rulers, as physical authorities. But Paul is really more pointing toward, and the physical certainly applies, but Paul is really more pointing toward the, the spiritual realm. Angels. Angels of darkness. Angels of light. And you see that because he speaks of the invisible for by him, verse 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, comma, whether thrones or dominions. And the Arians, of who Paul is conversing with, fighting against with here in his letter to Colossians, they were very interested in the supernatural, as most people are. were very interested in the supernatural. And Paul is speaking to this. And we... We would love to, to water this down and say, well, he's really just speaking about the physical dominions, authorities, rulers. But how much more important is it that Christ be preeminent over things we cannot see, over the invisible, over angels of darkness and light? Angels spend every breath and ounce of energy they have angels of light, in praising God. But they are also mere cre- cre- creatures. They're nothing more than creatures that God has created. And they are subject to Christ, and they cannot add or subtract from His work. So, when we expect, through the preeminence, through the power, through the Lordship of Christ, His control all, over all things, and Him going to work all things together, together for good... We're not going to expect it to come from God and angels, as some would would think falsely. We must expect it to come from God alone. I love the last three ver- uh, last three words of verse sixteen. <clears throat> we 
could very easily devote an entire sermon to that. And for Him. All creation is for Him. We are created for Him. Verse 17. Because He's preeminent over creation, He holds all things together. In our view of things, oftentimes this world looks just simply like a plate spinning act, if you've seen that. You know, the guy's just over there running from pole to pole, just going for all he's worth, spinning it, hoping that nothing comes crashing down. And if that's what this world is about, and Christ is just running from plate to plate, trying to keep us all going, I want off the roller coaster ride. Because I don't want to be the first to crash, nor does anyone else. And yet, that's, that's not it. It's a fine-tuned, oiled machine. He's got it all working together. It's not chaos. The world's busiest airport, as many of you, if you fly, would know, it's, it's in Atlanta. Atlanta Airport is the busiest airport of the world as of 2013. Beijing has got them right now. Trust that America will pull through. Atlanta's, Atlanta's the busiest airport in the world. On a clear day, five runways, 120 planes, will go and come in an hour. That's a plane every 30 seconds. Big, small, big or small. If you were to pull up alongside and just watch, I mean, every 30 seconds, I mean, it takes 30 seconds for a plane to land and get to the end of the runway and turn around, and here comes another. And you would, you would think, this is crazy. And they're taking off from all different directions and, and no one bangs into each other. And yet you, you climb what is the, the, the tallest control tower in the world, 500 plus feet in Atlanta. And it would all look like just a perfectly synchronized machine. They've got it all under control. They know where everyone is. They know what's happening. They've got it down time to the second And on a very small scale, that is the way Christ has all things. It looks chaotic, and yet it's perfectly meshed to the next thing. It's all working together. It's all making sense in some way eventually. Not maybe to us at the moment, but it is that is the truth. That is what is happening. Because Christ is the Son of God, and He is holding everything together. Together, completely and utterly. Corey Timboom's picture of the messy fabric. Fabric. You can't. If you're looking at the back, it just looks all cluttered, and then you go around to the front side, and it's just a beautiful mosaic of color and picture. We see the back. Christ sees the front. The gospel, Christ, is what brings peace and tranquility to a disorderly and disjointed society. And before Christ. We are not lost only in sin. We're not lost not only in our sin, but we are lost to any sort of peace and harmony with our fellow man and the understanding of the reason for our existence and place in this world around us. Why do you think that the world is always promoting world peace, saving the planet, Earth Day? They're big pushes because they don't know Christ and that's their only hope. For some sort of peacefulness around this cacophony of unrest that they're that they're in, but when Christ comes into a life, 
he brings the answers. He brings the perspective, the grander perspective. He's the linchpin that holds this whole thing together. It's not out of control. He's got it because he's fully God. Many of you have probably seen the video series, How Great Our God by Louis Giglio. And he has a great picture in there of, of the human body and the protein molecule in our body called laminin and how it holds so many structures together. And then when you take that protein molecule and you look at it underneath a microscope, the cell structure, the way it's created and designed is in the shape of the cross. And he points well to the fact that in him all things hold together. Our life, we breathe in and out because of the preeminence, the lordship of Christ over all things. We see the preeminence in verse 18 of Christ in the church. Christ is not only preeminent in creation, he's preeminent in the church. And what a picture we're given of of headship, of the relationship between a head and a body. And Christ is to be in full and supreme command of his church. And he should be the deciding factor on matters of ceremony and matters of worship and matters of relationship. And yet, if you've ever known anyone with the disease of Parkinson's, you would understand that there are times when the mind wants to do something that the body is revolting against and does not do. And that is the way oftentimes the church is in sin. Christ leading strongly, going this way, proclaiming clearly through his word what direction should be taken. And yet we, we revolt and, and a very ugly, miserable existence comes about. The churches get broken up. People get hurt. I would hope that Christ would be preeminent in this church. And I think that the proof is in the pudding. What comes from the pulpit is a good depiction of whether or not Christ is in the church. But it just begins there. It ends whether or not we, as the body of Christ, will take the spoken word of truth and apply it on a day-to-day basis. Submitting ourselves to to his preeminence. Submitting ourselves to his lordship. Now, another error of doctrine may come into place here. You saw in verse 15, he's the image. Sometimes we can get the wrong understanding of what that means. He's the firstborn of all creation. What that doesn't mean is that he was born first, which means he was there from the beginning. But then you have another firstborn here in verse 18. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, what we're not speaking of here is that Christ was the first to rise from the grave. We know that wasn't the case. He rose, he brought Lazarus from the grave. He was the first to raise himself and the only one to raise himself from the dead. But what is being spoken of here is that Christ is is of first importance of the beginning of the new birth in Christ, made alive in Christ. He paved the way through his death for us to have life. He was first in that. Now, I want, I want to bring the preeminence of Christ in creation and the preeminence of Christ in the church and show why those things are, why Christ has to be preeminent over those things. And it ends here 
in verse 19 through 20 that Christ is preeminent in redemption. Christ is the head, he's the beginning, he's the firstborn, in order that he might be preeminent in redemption. Look at this with me, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself, to reconcile to himself all things. Read it again. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we could say, in order that through him all things would be reconciled to God. He is preeminent in redemption. I don't think we can have a a big enough view of how important this is. If If he wasn't first, if the plan did not include Christ from the beginning, if... If he was an afterthought, it doesn't work. But he was there from the, from the very beginning. It all has centered around him. Because only through him will we be able to be reconciled to God the Father. He had to be the perfect sacrifice. He had to be the Lamb of God. He had to be the perfect and righteous Son of God. Or He couldn't have been preeminent. He couldn't have, he couldn't have been first. He couldn't have been of greatest importance. He couldn't be now. And the only one which is preeminent over all things would have been able to do the work of gospel reconciliation. Christ only could have been able to do it. No one else could have done it because only He is of greatest importance over all things and controls all things. Preeminent over the church, creation, powers, rulers, angels, spiritual, material, life, limb. The simple question of application that arises for us is, do we recognize the lordship, the preeminence of Christ in our lives? Now, the question is not, is Christ preeminent in your life? He is whether you like it or not. It's very clear here in Scripture. He's controlling all things. He's holding all things together. But do we recognize that He is Lord? That He is... Is He of first importance in our lives? The man Christ Jesus, in which all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is He first What is the purpose of the preeminence of Christ? We've spoken of it. The lordship of Christ over all things. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the purpose of the preeminence of Christ. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The purpose of the preeminence of Christ is simply that we might have an eternal relationship with God the Father. And that should... That should absolutely blow our minds. 
Christ, the relationship that we have, this word of truth, it's the only way that we can have a relationship with God the Father. That statement alone will will one day cause us to drop to our knees and, and sing glory, 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 and holy, holy, holy. You see, before Christ, we were, we were enemies. Enemies bound for eternal damnation and complete and utter destruction. And I couldn't think of a stronger word or a stronger group of words than complete and utter destruction. And then, and then just one thing happened. It wasn't two things. It wasn't three things. It was just one thing. And that was the blood of Christ was spilt. You see that in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. One thing happened. That son of God, the only son of God, the preeminent divine son of God, went to a cross. He's the only one who could have done it. And he spilt his blood. And by that he made peace with us. That one thing happened. We were once in debt. Bound for eternal debtor's prison, and that's putting it in the mildest terms, unable to mildest terms, unable to ever repay. And then one thing happened, and that one thing was not that you came to church and paid off your sins, or that you went to a priest and confessed, or that you went to an accountability partner and said something. It's not that you read your Bible. It's not that you prayed a prayer. One thing happened, and that was that the blood of Christ was spilled. And paid your debts. Indelibly stamping upon that debtor's record. Paid. We were once criminals. Not of the petty kind. We didn't just maybe steal a pencil or speed, get a speeding ticket. Maybe disrespect someone or have a disobedient thought or action. Maybe an impure thought or two. No, according to James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law yet fails in one point is guilty, is responsible for all. We, fa- we, we did one thing. And we are, we are, we are fully, we, we, we've committed everything. We are criminals, worthy to be tried, worthy to be punished to the greatest degree. Fully deserving of God's full and unmitigated wrath. And then one thing happened. And that wasn't that we decided we'd slow down and do better next time. Or that we'd, we'd go to a seminar and learn to control our words. Or we'd, we'd put a little reminder on the dashboard so we wouldn't speed. Only one thing happened. It wasn't anything that we did. And that was the blood of Christ was spilt so that we could be reconciled to God. Christ paid by his blood for us to be reconciled. Through Christ alone, as the psalm says, my hope is found. As we sung, there is power, 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 and the wonder, wonder-working power and the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ, as John says, is the way, the truth, and the life. There's, there's only one way. Through Christ alone, we were and are reconciled to God. I love R.C. Sproul's quote in his little book, The Truth of the Cross. Christ, then, is the one who made satisfaction 
By his work on the cross, he satisfied the demands of God's justice with regard to our debt, our state of enmity, meaning our state of being enemies with God, and our crime. In light of the facts of God's justice and our sinfulness, it is not difficult to see the absolute necessity of atonement. And yet every day, we oftentimes fail in seeing that absolute necessity of what Christ did for us. Because if we did, there would be, uh, we would live a, a life by His grace alone, but live a life that is where He is more, He is He is Lord, He is preeminent. We recognize that preeminence over every area of our life. He is already that preeminent and Lord over every area of our life, but we don't submit to it as we should because we don't fully understand that only Him, only Christ. Only through Christ can we be reconciled. I love this, the term making peace by the blood of the cross. If we want peace with God, it's found only through Christ. And if there's not peace in our lives today, I'm not talking about externally or circumstantially, I'm talking about internally. If we're worried, if we're fearful, if we're anxious, if we're impatient, It's by understanding this preeminence of Christ that we have all the anxious fears at the verge of Jordan go away. Christ holds all things together. He's Lord over all things. That's what drives those fears away. I love Paul's um, intensity here from verse 15 uh, through 20 and and it really just goes on and we'll pick that up next week but um, you notice his and uh, a couple different places here. You see it in verse 17. You see it in verse 20. You see it in verse 21. You almost feel Paul, um, every single time he says something, you kind of see him maybe pacing up and down, transcribing this, speaking at somebody, writing it down. And his voice, he thinks, talks slowly and, and then, whoa, 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 and, 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 and. He gets more and more excited. It's all culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we should respond, respond the same way. We should be able to read this and go, whoa, whoa, and, and not only that, and he also does this and that and that and that. It gets bigger and bigger. All things hold together. I'm closing here, just a few notes. All things, not just some things, but everything. And that all things hold together really is an evangelistic cry at its very core. It should be for us. We should be taking that to the world and saying, all things, all the junk, all the sin, all the addictions, all things are held together by Christ. And Christ can can change that. It's It's a message of freedom. Come to Christ and see how it all works together. The the hurting world around us definitely, certainly needs to hear this. John Calvin, commentary on Colossians says, This also is a magnificent commendation of Christ, that we cannot be joined to God otherwise than through Him. In the first place, let us consider that our happiness consists in our cleaving to God, And that, on the other hand, there is nothing more miserable, there's no peace, I would add, than to be alienated from him. He declares accordingly that we are blessed through Christ alone, inasmuch as he is the bond of our connection with God. And on the other hand, that apart from him, we are most miserable because we are shut out 
from God. It says here that all things will be reconciled to God. And all things will be reconciled for eternity on that final day. On that, on that day of judgment. If, if you name the name of Christ and you have submitted to His Lordship, you are reconciled to God and you will be with Him for eternity. And yet, for those who do not know Christ and do not submit to the Lordship of Christ in their lives, you will be reconciled to God as well. But in a completely and totally different way. You will be reconciled to God. You will be reconciled to Christ through eternity because you will receive the just and eternal punishment for your soul, damnation and hellfire for eternity. It will be reconciled one way or the other. So where, where should we go from studying these verses or where do we go from here? What should be our takeaway? It should be, it should be humility. It should be awe. It should be a fear of God. We should be driven to our knees in worship and then yet lifted by His grace with strength to march forward. And, and seeking by His strength to put those things that are not under His Lordship. That we have sought, those idols we have sought to keep for ourselves, our pull and under our, under our own control, with somehow believing that we really do control those things and we really can work those things, not believing the truth that He is preeminent over all things. By His grace, by His strength, we can submit ourselves in those areas back to Christ. It's a, it's a simple and clear call. Will we be, as Bill prayed, will we, be, will we, will we submit to Him in, in everything? Not just that which is easy or that which is comfortable or that which is we find enjoyable, but in all things. Not just in the things that people see, not just in the big sins of life, but in the, in the little things. Will we, will we submit to His Lordship over our tongue, over our ears, over our eyes, over the thoughts and intents of our hearts? And what is very clear is that unless we do so, we, we, are, we, are, we are in sin. And, and if we do not submit, the question could be asked and Almost shouldn't be asked, but how long can you not submit to the Lordship of Christ before you must begin saying, there's not fruit of repentance here. And this is our, the churches. And maybe this church is full of people every Sunday that lie to themselves in thinking that I'm here. And yet they, for six days, have nothing to do with the Lord. Allowing the Lordship of Christ in every area of their lives. That, that, that is a scary place to walk. And one we should not tread on lightly or long. But very quickly come back. If that day is to come today when Christ returns and says. And stands before us. 
we should shake in thinking. He would say, I never knew you. And yet, see, I was in church that morning. I read my Bible that afternoon. And he would say, I, I never knew you. We must, we must look at the heart, not just what we want other people to see. To examine what, what, is the, what is the driving desire. Is it Christ preeminent? Christ Lord? Christ first over all things? If it's not, come to Christ. If you know him, come to him again. Pleading once again his grace all the more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we stand here, we pray because of Christ. Oh God, we thank you. What a what a gift that through the blood of Christ we have peace with the Father. Father, I pray that I would daily submit to you in every area. That we would daily submit to you in every area. And though, Father, it is it is easy or easier to in the falsehood of our thinking to, to try to control this or that or to, to say, well, I'm, when I'm less busy or more organized, I'll, I'll, I'll put Christ back where he's supposed to be. May we repent from these things. Father, there are, there are individuals of the, in this room, as there always are when there is a group gathered that are hurting. Maybe they're hurting, Father, because they're in sin. Maybe they're hurting because they're under suffering, seeking to live out the life of Christ. Or maybe they're hurting because of a, a broken relationship or a struggling marriage. Whatever the case may be, I would ask, Father, that you would open their eyes and open our eyes to the fact that you, you are holding all these things together. You are well aware. Christ is well aware. God is well aware of all things We've not been left to our own devices. You will use these things for your glory. And at the same time, you call us to, to do what we can do in our relationship with you. And to repent if necessary. To go to your word for encouragement nowhere else. Only in Christ, as Calvin says, do we find that blessed happiness, that blessed peace. So I pray, Father, for those individuals within this room. That they might be encouraged by the word of truth here from Colossians 1. Father, I pray that as we would go now to, uh, to, the, to the table, to the Lord's table. That seeing that much more this morning from your word, the, the glory of Christ. That this might be a, a rich and enjoyable and satisfying supper. The Lord's Supper. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.